Well, uh, great to be with you this morning as we worship King Jesus. And we're finishing up with the Sermon on the Mount. It's been quite a journey. Uh, it's been a good one. And uh, many have said it's, it's the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And... And we want to, and he closes it out very intentionally uh, so that we, uh, as his brother James says, not just here, but also do. And so we're going to close the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus did, asking this question. What's your foundation? What's your foundation? But before we get started, let's pray together again one more time. Father, we gather here this morning desiring to hear from you. Lord Jesus, as you spoke to the crowds 2,000 years ago, your word rings through the ages, God, to this very day, to this very moment, to speak to your people now, today, at this time, in this place. Lord, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We want to hear the shepherd's voice this morning. We want to hear, trust, believe, obey. So help us, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to do all these things. And perhaps this morning, Lord Jesus, there is someone who, up to this point in their life, they have, build, they have built their life upon the sand. And when the flood comes, Lord, they'll be swept away. I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see what the foundation of their life is. And that they would turn and see that there is another way, another foundation on which they can build that will endure forever. And I pray that they would do whatever it takes, Lord, to make sure their lives are built upon the true foundation this morning. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 will be um, at the very end of the chapter. As you do, I'd like to share this illustration from uh, a little book uh, written by Chuck Swindoll. And this is, uh, this is the, the, the little uh, parable, if you will, that Chuck Swindoll gives in the book. He says, let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family in the move to Europe for six to eight months. And I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I will write you regularly and give you direction and instructions. So I leave, I leave and you stay. Months pass. And a flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all of my expectations. Finally, I return. 
Soon after my arrival, I drive down, to, uh, drive down to the office, and I'm stunned. The grass and the weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room, and she's doing her nails, chewing gum, listening to her favorite disco station. I look around and notice the waste baskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems concerned that the owner uh, has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has temporarily been turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. I say, what in the world is going on, man? He says, what do you mean? I said, well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. I got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have had a letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things that you wrote. Some of the things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two even memorized the whole letter. Great stuff in those letters. And I'll say, okay, okay, you got my letters. You studied them and you meditated on them and you discussed and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Do? Uh, we didn't do anything about them. Now, of course, we, we, we look at that and it, it sounds absurd to us, but my goodness, what a parable. That our master, our CEO may come back one day <laughs> and he'll say, did you get my letters? Oh yeah, we, we read it. We memorized it. We had studies about it. Well then, what's this mess? What did you do? You know, really this story is just a retelling of, of Jesus' own, own parable about the master going away on a journey. And he comes back and will he find his servants faithful when he does? It's not enough to hear as James said, but we must be doers also. And that's the way Jesus, very significantly, closes this sermon in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, and we'll read it together. Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The Word of God. So I want to explore this title under three headings this morning. Number one is the wise builder. We're going to talk about the wise builder. Number two, we're going to talk about the foolish builder. The foolish builder. And number three, we're going to talk about the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ, the wise builder, 
the foolish builder and the authority of Christ. First, let's talk about the wise builder. Jesus concludes his sermon, obviously, with a very significant and important illustration. It's an important lesson. It was an important lesson then. It's an important lesson now. And the question that he concludes his sermon with is this. It's the question that, ev that we all need to ask ourselves this morning. And the question is this. What is our foundation? What is your foundation? What is my foundation? What is the foundation of our lives? As we discussed this morning, that's the question we all need to ask ourselves. On what foundation have we built our lives upon? And I pray this morning that God would give us the grace, the divine grace, that if our lives are built to any degree upon the sand, I pray that he would give us the grace this morning to tear the whole thing down if necessary, to rebuild it on the one true foundation. This, this illustration here serves as a warning to all whoever hear the, hears the these words to all whoever will read the Sermon on the Mount. What is the warning? The warning is this. It is not enough just to hear Jesus' words. We must hear and do. We must hear and obey. It's so easy. We all know it. We all feel it, right? It's so easy just to hear. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to hear. We must hear and we must obey. The illustration is profound. It just consists of a very... Simple contrast. There are two kinds of people, as we've been talking about for the past few weeks. There are basically, there are really only two fundamental responses in life to the teachings of Jesus, right? There, you know, there's, there's some people who are white and black. There's some people who, like, who live more in shades of gray. Some things in life are, are white and black. Some things in life are more gray areas. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this particular issue that Jesus is talking about is one of those white and black issues. There is no gray. Either your house is built on the foundation of rock or it's built on the sand. It's either one or the other. Can't be both. Either, either, uh, you, either you bear, as we've been talking about, either you bear good fruit or you bear ultimately bad fruit. Either you have good roots or you have bad roots. Either on the last day, Jesus will either say, I know you, you're mine, or he'll say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus divides the world cleanly down the middle into two categories. Those who build their life on the rock and those who build their life on the sand. The first kind of person Jesus refers to as the wise person. The wise person. He's enjoining us to be wise. Nobody wants to be a fool. Nobody wants to be a fool. But Jesus is saying there's a lot of people who ultimately, when it's all said and done, will show to have been fools. And I'm telling you how to be wise. How, do you, how are you wise? Jesus says the wise man is the person who not just hears my words, but who hears them and does them. Who builds his, and this person is like a house, a person who builds, a builder who builds their house upon the rock. And so let's think about the, that analogy a little bit. What does the house represent? 
It seems to me that the house in the analogy represents the person's life. You know, we sometimes say we sometimes say things like, "We're uh, I'm making uh, I'm I'm making a life for myself," or you know, a married couple might say something like, "We're we're building a life together," right? So we understand the analogy of of building something with our lives. The foundation, then, uh, it represents what what we're building with our lives and the resources and the opportunities that God has given to us. The house represents what we will what we will have to show for our lives when we stand before Christ one day. Right? All of us is going to all of us are going to stand before Christ one day, and we'll have something. Whatever it is, we'll have something to show for well, uh, uh, good or bad. Uh, uh, we'll have something, uh, the life that we have built, it'll be there. And Jesus is going to look at it and he's going to see what, he, what you did with the life that he gave you. That's the house that we're building. And then beyond that, the burning question is this, is what foundation are you building your life upon? So on the structure, the, the, the building itself, of course, is important. But more important than the building itself is the foundation that the building is built upon. The foundation, uh, the foundation represents the, the fundamental truths and beliefs and principles of our lives. The foundation represents the who or the what that or the what we're living for. The foundation represents where we find our meaning and our hopes and our purposes and our motivations and our desires. If the house, if the house represents the what we build of our lives, the foundation represents the why we build of our lives. And Jesus is saying, in essence, that there is only one foundation that is made of rock and everything else is sand. There is only one thing that you can build your life upon that when you stand before Christ on the last day, it will endure and not be consumed in the flames. That when the floods of judgment come upon it, it won't be swept away, but it will be standing when it's all said and done. And this one true foundation is Jesus Christ, His life, His word, His truth, His teaching, His power. And so, if we build our lives upon Christ, Jesus says, you're wise. You're wise. He's pleading for people to be wise. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. There's an eternity to come after this. And if you believe that, there's only one wise course of action. And that is to build your life upon Christ. It doesn't matter how wise you are in any other capacity. It doesn't matter if you're the shrewdest businessman in the world and you die a billionaire. If when you die, you won't take uh, uh, money doesn't matter to God. When you stand before him, it doesn't matter if you are the wisest worldly person in the world. You will have proved to be an eternal fool if you didn't build your life upon Jesus Christ. What makes living for Christ wise? Well, because, Jesus says, the storms are going to come. It's not a matter of if they're going to come. It's a matter of when. And the ultimate storm that Jesus is talking about is, of course, the storm, the flood of judgment. In fact, this, I believe, is built into Jesus' illustration here because he uses the image 
of a flood. And water, throughout the Bible, water is an image of judgment. Okay? In, in Israel, a common geographical feature is what they, call, uh, what they call a wadi. Okay? And a wadi is basically, it's a dry, it's a dry stream bed. Uh, sometimes sometimes it, in the Old Testament, the word is translated as river or valley. But essentially, it's a dry stream bed that, uh, during the rainy seasons or during the storms that could pop up, because Israel, by and large, is a pretty dry, arid place, okay? It's these dry stream beds that, that were very common there, that when a storm would rise up, it would, a dry stream bed, just in a matter of, you know, uh, of, uh, Hours would become a, 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 flo a flooding a riverbed, a torrent. Okay? And so, so this image, everyone knew about it in Israel. <clears throat> and also in the Bible, as I said, water is a common image of judgment. The flood, the flood was God's first judgment uh, against, uh, against the whole world for their, for their sin. It was, it was the, literally the flood of judgment. Where God destroyed all of the wicked world for their sin. Except for one righteous man whom the Bible says God himself shut the door to the ark to save him. Uh, in the Exodus, the same sea that Israel walked through as on dry land did what? It drowned the Egyptians, right? Paul picks up on that later and refers to that as, as baptism. And so... Uh, God delivered Israel, if you will, through the floodwaters of judgment of the Red Sea, but rebellious Israel was drowned by it. And in the same way, it, that it uh, is representative of baptism. Baptism represents what? Your old self doing what? Dying in the what? In the, in the baptism of judgment. Your old self has to be killed. It has to die so that a new life, a new a, 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 a new spirit wrought, spirit brought life can come to life in you, and that's what baptism represents. And so, and so, the water represents ultimately the judgment of God. And Jesus says it's coming. It's not if the storm will come; it's when the storm will come. It's when the storm of judgment will come. The Bible says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To receive what we are due for what we've done in the body. That'll happen either when we die or when Christ returns. Whichever comes first. And you don't have to live very long to know that. And you don't have to turn on the news for very long to know. That life is short. Every day is a gift. And today... Today might be the day that I stand before Jesus Christ. We just don't know. Today might be the day. The judgment is coming. It's coming. We all have to face it. So it's not a question of is if we will face it. It's a question of when it does come, will we be swept away by it or will we or will be Will we still be standing through it? Noah didn't get a pass from the flood. Noah had to endure the flood. The difference is that Noah was in the boat. 
we're all going to go under the judgment of God in a sense. The question is, will we be in Christ or not? Christ is our shield. Christ is our God, our, 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 our protector. He is our refuge. He bore God's wrath for us if we believe and trust in Him. So that when the judgment comes, we are, as it were, hiding in Christ. And on the cross, all the judgment was poured on Him as He is shielding us from it so that we wouldn't have to endure it. But if we're not in Christ, we'll be swept away. And so I pray this morning, I pray, and I, and I believe, by God's grace, if you really ask Him, He'll, he'll reveal it to you, whether your life is truly built on the one foundation or not. We, sh you know, we should reflect on it and think about it, and not just assume it. And we should really ask, Lord, what's my foundation? What's the, my, the foundation of my life? And I pray that we'll heed Christ's warning, or else we'll be swept away. And so number one, there's the wise builder, and number two, there's the foolish builder. Verse 26, it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and built against a, a beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, there's the wise builder who builds his house on the rock, but that's not the only option. There's also the foolish builders who built their house on the sand. And it grieves me to think that, that this is true. That there, there is not, there, not everyone's life is built upon the rock. And sadly, some people think that their life is when really it isn't. And the, urge, the, the, the urgency here, the warning, is to reflect and to ask, what is your life truly built on? The fool is the person, this is how you know who hears Jesus' words but doesn't do them. They listen to Jesus. They've heard Jesus' teaching, but they don't trust Him. They don't believe Him. They don't obey Him. This is like building your life upon the sand. It's, it's like building your life in one of the wadis where you think it's okay until the storm comes and all of a sudden you realize you built your house in the middle of where the rushing waters are going to gather together and flood your house. And notice here something worth noticing is worth noticing is this. The two houses might look the same. They could look, they could look very similar. A, or a house built upon the rock and a house built upon the sand. From all, from all external purposes, they might look like the same house. But you won't realize. But, 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 and why is that? Because oftentimes the foundations go unseen. Right? The motivations the attitudes, the beliefs, what actually drives a person, that, that which a person actually lives for, sometimes it's not obvious. It can be hidden. It can be subtle. Two lives can look very similar on the outside, but the foundation can be very different. Jesus, in just a few verses earlier, said that they would, there would be those who call Him Lord, Lord, who do mighty works in his name, who even cast out demons in his name. 
But when they stand before him on the last day, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so we have to beware of building our house on the wrong foundation. What happens to the life, the house that is built on something other than the trust and faith and love and obedience to Christ? Jesus said, it fell and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. If you look at this line there, verse 27, you'll realize that this phrase, the house fell and great was the fall of it, is what? It's the very last line of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very last line of the Sermon on the Mount. What a way to end a sermon. He ends the sermon like this. The house fell and great was the fall of it. He's tying all of these illustrations together that he's closed this sermon with. The, the fall of the house is just like the tree that bears bad fruit that is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fall of the house is just like the person who says, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says to them, I don't know you. Jesus says, and, and, and look, it's intentional, right? He didn't just say the house fall. He makes a point to say, great was the fall of it. It's not a little fall. It's a great fall. And so Jesus really is what? I, I think he really is trying to, he's trying to scare you with the truth. You know, some people say, some people say, well, you can't be scared into heaven. Well, I think there's a sense in which you can't. In fact, I have a pastor tell me I was scared in the, as a young child. He was scared into heaven. Of course, it must be more than that. That fear must turn into faith and love and trust. But the reality is, if you're not scared of hell, you don't understand it. You do not want to go there. I don't want a single person to go there. People toy around with their life. They toy around with their life. Apparently, they think their life is so insignificant that it just doesn't matter what they do with their life. And I want to tell you, your life is so important that it's going to last forever. Your soul, your life, your body is eternal. It will, it will endure in either one of two places, hell or heaven. That's how significant and that's how important your life is. And so your life is not something to be frittered away, but it's something to take seriously. Because we all will, we all are building our lives upon one thing or another, and, and the judgment is coming. And we'll have to answer for what we did with our life. And so Jesus is saying, Jesus is pleading with us to take our lives and our souls seriously. Don't be the foolish builder because the fall will be great. Greater than you ever thought, greater than you ever imagined will be the fall of the person who doesn't build their life upon Christ. He's not saying that. You know, when we, when people, when we talk like this today because of our cultural climate, 
You know, people just feel like, oh, you're just trying to be, you're just trying to be like, aha, gotcha. I'm not trying to be, aha, gotcha. Jesus isn't trying to be, aha, gotcha, you're going to hell. Jesus isn't trying to act like that. He's trying to warn you because he doesn't want you to do that. He doesn't want you to go there. He doesn't want you to be a fool. So he's telling, so he loves you enough to tell you the truth. The floods are coming. What's your foundation? This great will be the fall of those who hear the word of God, but don't do anything about it. A Greek scholar, A.T. Robinson, said this. He said, hearing sermons is dangerous business. Hearing sermons is dangerous business. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so I pray this morning that we'll be willing to hear Jesus' words, but not just hear them, but to receive them. So that we will reflect, uh, God help us reflect on the Sermon on the Mount and not just hear it, but do it. Help us be poor in spirit. Help us be holy and uh, pure in heart. Help us love our neighbor. Help us love our enemy. Help us go the extra mile. Help us not lust. Help us not be greedy. Help us not be hypocrites. Help us do... Help us be godly Christian people so that we hear and trust and obey and prove that we have good roots by our good fruit. Jesus is coming. Where is our foundation? And so we see the wise builder. Number two, we see the foolish builder. And finally here, we see the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Verse 28 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So a large part of the Sermon on the Mount and the, the stories leading up to it and so on and the stories that are going to be following from it focuses on, uh, on Jesus' authority. Jesus can say these things because he has authority. Jesus can ex expect obedience on these things because he has authority. When Jesus spoke the, the Sermon on the Mount, people realized the way he was speaking was not like everybody spoke because he's speaking as one who has authority. And they heard it and they were astonished at the authority of Christ. No, Matthew doesn't tell us how the crowds responded to Jesus' teaching. It's up in the air. How will they respond to Jesus' teaching? How will we respond to Jesus' teaching? 
He doesn't say. The Gospel of John talks a lot about how the crowds that followed Jesus were often fickle. They were listening, but they just liked to see miracles. They just liked to see these supernatural things happen. They just liked to get a free meal. Many of them were, were coming for the spectacle, not because they heard and trusted and believed and surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. But whether they came away from the sermon trusting and obeying Jesus or just, uh, or just thinking, you know, what to do, you know, this is, I can't believe what I'm hearing. But no matter what, no matter what their ultimate response to Jesus, everyone walked away astonished. Because they recognized that something different was going on here. His authority is found both in the content of his teaching and in the manner of his teaching. In Jesus' day, it was common for rabbis to just quote other rabbis. They just quote each other saying, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. But Jesus didn't look elsewhere for his authority. We can't miss this. It's easy to miss this because we just get so familiar with the Bible. But we have to understand that Jesus is coming, and he's coming in a spectacularly different way. Because all the rabbis said, this rabbi says this, this rabbi says this. And then Jesus shows up and he says, you have heard this said, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't care what those other guys say, said to you, because guess what? This is what I'm saying. This is what I have to say. Will we listen to it or not? Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the commandments. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. What does that mean? It's shocking. We talked about that. All the, the Jews would have been stunned when they heard that. Why? Because Jesus is coming and he's saying to them, you know all the scriptures that you read, the, the, the Old Testament that you submit to, that you think is so important, that you give your life to? Guess what? They're talking about me. It's about me. I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I've came to fulfill them. And, no, and we, see the, we see his authority all in the sermon here. Like in chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is, that, what is he implying? What is he implying about himself? That he's the Lord, Lord. And that, and that, and that he assumes that the, that the person who truly enters the kingdom of heaven at bare minimum is the person who says this. Calls me Lord, Lord. So he's acknowledging within the sermon himself that a person's... Jesus is saying to these Jews that, a, that your eternal destiny hinges on what you think about my lordship. That's an, that's an astounding claim. In the same passage, he says, those who call me Lord, Lord, will not necessarily enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? He, just, he said that just a few verses before our text. And then in our text today, he says, whoever hears what? Who hears these words of mine and does them. So look at the, par look at the parallel in this passage, right? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, and then in our passage today, he says, Whoever, does these, whoever obeys these words of mine, right? So what is Jesus doing? He says, the will of the Father is what? 
my words. So Jesus is claiming before all the people that what? That his word is equivalent to God's words. That his words is equivalent to God the Father's words. That is, if you think about, I mean, we miss it, but we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Jew. This man shows up on the scene and he says, your, your eternal state, where you, where you will spend eternity, ultimately depends on me. Would you believe him? Would you trust him? Would you follow him? It's shocking. But that's what he's saying. That he is, he is making this claim that he is the final determiner of who is and isn't in the kingdom of God. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them, it's by Jesus' words we will ultimately be judged. And so we shall either hear and be wise, trust and obey and build our life upon the rock or we'll be fools and build our lives upon the sand and be swept away. And so as we close, uh, as we close this morning, this is the, this is the invitation. This is the, this is the plea that Christ is making and that I'm making this morning. Let our lives be built upon the rock, church. Let your life, let my life be built upon the rock. And in any place where our life is edging over into the sand, I pray that God would help us and he will help us. And if, and we, and if we ask him to give us wisdom and strength to, to turn and to repent, he will help us to make sure that our life is fully built on the true foundation. But of course, fundamentally, fundamentally, either we're on the rock or we aren't. And so as we close this morning, the invitation is this. Jesus is enjoining us, he's pleading with us, to build our life upon the rock. And so this morning, if you're listening, and you know deep in your heart, that your life, that thus far your life has been built upon the sand. I want to tell you this morning, it doesn't have to end that way. That doesn't have to be, you don't have to be swept away when the, when the, when the floods come. Jesus has made the way. He has come. He has lived a life that you owe to God. He lived it for you. He came and he has died the death on the cross taking that punishment, hiding us in himself, taking that punishment so that we wouldn't have to be swept away. He endured the flood for us so that we can hide in him on that day. He rose from the dead, showing that sin truly is forgiven. And since the wages of sin is death, he is showing us that he has truly forgiven our sin so that, the, so that we won't ultimately get what we deserve, but that God will show mercy to us. And because he lives, Jesus... Uh, the Bible says we also will live. And so if our sins are forgiven in him, we know that one day, like he rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. And when we stand before God on that day in judgment, we will not be swept away, but our lives will endure because they will have been built upon Christ, the solid rock. And if you in this moment in your heart call on Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, change me. Lord, I'll tear down my whole life if I have to, to rebuild it on the rock. Jesus will help you do it.
And he'll make sure that it'll stand before him on the last day. Call on him at this moment in your heart. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to save you. Ask him to change you. And you will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. And if you make a decision to follow Christ this morning, the next step is so important. Uh, you need to contact a faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church and become part of the family of God. You can contact me. If you're online, you can contact me personally. On Facebook, if you're here, you can talk to me right after the service. You need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, testifying to the world that your old self has died, that a new self has come to life in you. Build your house upon the rock. Be wise, Jesus says, and live forever. Let's pray.